It's great to be together, and uh, <clears throat> probably shouldn't say this at the beginning of the lesson. My plan is to finish the book of Leviticus today. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see how we do with the, with the time here. There's a lot of things I want to cover. We're, we're in the last three chapters of Leviticus right now, so uh, my my goal is to cover chapters 25 through 27. We'll see how we do. So let's start in Leviticus chapter 25. Open your Bibles there. And recently, last several chapters of Leviticus, it seems like the, the focus changes every chapter or two. Chapters 21, 22, we're talking about the requirements for priests and sacrifice. This is useful for us because it talks about in the New Testament that we are the new priesthood, members of the new priesthood, Romans 12, 1, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. So whenever we're, we're reading through this, the question is, what's the application for us? Leviticus 24, we talked about the festivals and the Sabbath, and, and all the, the details associated with the festivals. I'm sorry, Leviticus 23, and uh, uh, the, the special holy days. And Paul said in Colossians 2 that, that all these things are foreshadowing things that are significant for us. We talked about that. Leviticus 24, last week we talked about the regulations for the lampstand, the showbread, the punishments for de- of death for people who curse God, the laws for vengeance. This is where you, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is from there. And so now we're in, in the last part of Leviticus, chapters 25 to 27. And some of the things that it talks about here are rules regarding the Sabbath rest for the land. So not only do the people rest on the Sabbath, but the land gets to rest every seven years, every seven seven. Seven growing seasons, the land gets to rest as well. And then it talks about the Jubilee year, which is every 50 years, and how you treat the poor, how you treat your brothers, how you treat your brothers who end up becoming slaves, what you do about that. Then uh, chapter 26, fascinating chapter. It's the big picture. I mean, to me, this is like summarizing most of the Old Testament in one chapter. So it's really a a, a wonderful chapter. And then chapter 27, the book closes with laws that have to do with redemption of property that is devoted to God. So people make, make, make vows to God. There are a lot of requirements in Leviticus. You have to do this, you have to do this. And then in 27, it talks about voluntary vows that people might make to God. And there are some examples of this in the, in the Old Testament. I can think of at least one in the New Testament too. I think in all these things, there are things for us to learn. So I want to start off in Leviticus chapter 25, Leviticus chapter 25 in verse 1. Let's start reading there. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years uh, you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your fields nor prune your vineyard. What grows by itself in your field you shall not reap nor gather the grapes of the vines you dedicated. It is a year of rest for the land. So the products of the land during the Sabbath year shall be food for you. For you, your male and female servants, your hired man, the alien who dwells with you, for your cattle and the wild animals in the land, all its produce shall be for food. So, um, the Sabbath, you work for six days and you have the seventh day off. And it says that when you when they enter, this is given at Mount Sinai at the beginning of the time in the wilderness. So they're going to be going through the wilderness for 40 years before they cross into the promised land. It says when you get the promised land, not only do you take a Sabbath, but the land takes a Sabbath too. The land takes a, gets a rest every seventh year. And I think some people think maybe you grew up on a farm. Well, that's crop rotation. You know, you just, but it's, it's not for that. This is, this is a little bit different. It says you just let it go. You don't plant anything. The vineyards, you don't, prune, you don't tend the vines. Um, so this, 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 uh, this passage here, to me, I struggle a little bit with this passage because it says, first of all, you don't plant anything, and it says you're going to eat what comes off of the land. So how are you going to do that? And I think that what helped put it together for me is, in, go back to Exodus 23, talks about the same thing there, but mentions some other 
details. Exodus 23 and verse 10 says, Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but in the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. What they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyards and your olive groves. Six days you shall do work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and donkey may rest, the sons of your female servant and your stranger may be refreshed. So, so okay, now I'm getting the picture, is that on the seventh year, the people didn't sow anything, they didn't reap anything, they didn't tend to their, their crops and it says that the idea is you just let the land produce whatever it wants to on its own, whatever it does naturally, and that food that the land produces will be for the poor. They can eat it. And anything that, the, that after the poor is satisfied, then it goes to the wild animals. So uh, it says that. And then it says, and then it mentions with the Sabbath that not only on the Sabbath are you to rest, but I want to make sure your servants get the day off and the donkeys, they have to get the day off too. Okay, so you're not going to overwork your donkeys. The donkeys get the day off. They get the donkeys get a day of rest. So, uh, so what does this tell you about the nature of God? All right, he cares about poor people, and he makes provision for them in Leviticus in the law. And we've seen this. This is one of many places where we see this. He cares about the poor. He cares about the wild animals. He cares about the donkeys. He cares about the servants. And he, he makes provision for those in the law of Moses. It's not just a lot of don't do this and don't do that and, and, and ritual things. He's also concerned about people and, and animals that, that, that would be uh, neglected and overlooked by many. So let's continue Leviticus chapter 25. And he talks about the, so you have the Sabbath of each week. You have the Sabbath <clears throat> Uh, of years on the seventh year the land rests and now there's there's kind of a, a third level of a third kind of sabbath here he talks about the the jubilee year which is after seven sets of seven years okay so another another cycle of seven is it goes for so leviticus 25 starting in verse 8 You shall also count seven years of rest for yourself, seven times seven years. And the time of the seven weeks of years, so a week of years is, is seven, so work for seven and week is the same thing, okay? A seven weeks of years shall be to you 49 years. That's seven times seven. Then you shall sound the trumpet throughout your land on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. Then you shall sanctify the 50th year and proclaim remission throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall signal the year of remission for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his homeland. That 50th year shall be the signal of remission for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows by itself, nor gather its sanctified things, for it is the signal of remission. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce from the field. In this year of remission, each shall return to his possessions. Also, if you should make a sale of land to your neighbor or buy from it, let the man not oppress his neighbor. According to the number of years after the signal, you shall buy land tenure from your neighbor, and he shall sell tenure to you according to the number of years of crops." According to the increase in years, his acquisition price for the tenure shall be increased, and according to the fewer number of years, his price shall be diminished. <clears throat> for he sells to you according to the number of crops. Therefore, let not a man oppress his neighbor, but you shall fear the Lord your God, for I am the Lord. So you shall do all my ordinances and keep my judgments and do them, then you will dwell in the land in confidence. Then the land will yield its produce, and you'll eat your fill and dwell there in confidence. But if you should say, what shall we eat in the seventh year, since we will not sow nor gather our produce? Then I will command my blessing to you on the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year and eat from the old produce until the ninth year, until the produce comes in. You shall eat 
of the old harvest. So let's think about this. So every seven years, you don't, you don't sow or reap. And then after seven sets of seven years, the next year, which is the 50th year, you don't. You don't do the same thing. So that means on the 49th year and the 50th year, there's no uh, sowing or reaping. And so you don't get a new crop until the following, the following season. So that's three years you've got to wait from the, from the, the end of one crop until the, the start of the next one. So, uh, and people are saying, well, obvious question is, okay, we have two years, we're not going to be planting anything. What are we going to do? We're going to starve to death if we do that. And then the Lord says here, don't worry about that. If you do this, I will provide on the sixth year enough for the next two seasons. So you'll have such a tremendous blessing uh, of a crop that you, you don't have to work for the next two years. So, and this is known in many, tra- I'm reading from a uh, translation based on the Septuagint. In many of your Bibles, it may say the, the, the year of Jubilee. It's referred to as the year of Jubilee. This is the 50th year. They sound the trumpet not only in Jerusalem, throughout the entire land, throughout all, all of Canaan, all the promised land. The, the sound of the trumpet announces this and on the day of the atonement, on the 10th day of the seventh month. And several things happen. One is the land goes back to its original owner. All right? So if you sold property during that time, you get it back during the year of Jubilee. And then the other thing, that people have to go back to their ancestral homelands and then, and then there's no planting or reaping this year. And then the other thing that's mentioned a little later on is that if someone is a slave, if a Jew ends up being a slave, to somebody and people become slaves then because uh, they go into debt. So if someone would go into debt and they'd have to to survive, they'd sell themselves to somebody else to be a slave. So that's one one of many ways you can end up being a slave in the ancient world. So he said if that was to happen, then you would be liberated on the, the year of Jubilee. So there's no work during that year. There's no, no planning or, or reaping that year anyway. And there's no tending the, the olive, olive trees and, and the vines, everything else. And uh, you get liberated. You go back. You get your land back that you may have maybe went bankrupt during that time. It all comes back to you. So this is an interesting arrangement that happens every 50 years. Um, so think about that. You're thinking, no planting for two whole years, and you're a farmer. I mean, you normally be living, you'd be living year to year, so you definitely want to have a blessing from God that year. But the whole idea that you're going to stop planning for two years, I would think that's going to take some faith on the part of people to say, I'm not going to plant anything for two years, and the Lord is going to have to just take care of me. And it reminds me of some things that Jesus said about don't worry about food. God, you, if you do what's right, God will take care of this. Think about what Jesus said in Luke 12. This is, uh, I think this is right after the dispute about the, the people who were arguing over the uh, inheritance. And he said, don't worry about your life, what you will eat. Or about your body, what you put on. Life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap nor have storehouses or, uh, or barns, and God feeds them. How much more value do you have than they? That's in verse, Luke 12, 22 to 24. And then he concludes in the, starting verse 29. And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. So this is, God says, Jesus says the same thing. He says, don't worry, about, don't worry about the food. You get your life right with God. You seek the kingdom of God. Or in Matthew 6, it says, seek first his kingdom. God will take care of, God will take care of all these things. Your job is is to make sure that you're obedient to God and you're walking with God. It's not Obviously, that's not an excuse for laziness. People have to be, be hardworking. But this, to me, was, would be a real test of faith, the thought of not working, not planning anything for two years. Uh, Clement Alexandria, writing about this requirement about the law of, of leaving the land fallow every seventh year as 
an example of the kindness of God that we can see in the law of Moses. And you don't think of, I want to learn about, about the kindness of God, I'm going to study the book of Leviticus. But Clement of Alexandria said, no, actually, it's in there. And so I'm going to read from, from something that he wrote. <clears throat> he said, and in the harvest, the owners are prohibited from appropriating what falls from handfuls, as also in reaping, the law enjoins a part of, to be left unreaped. So he's talking, first of all, he's talking about, we, we, we discussed this earlier, I think this is in Leviticus 19, where he says, when you, when you, when you reap the field, you leave leave the stuff at the corners and when you're picking grapes you don't have to pick every single one you leave some for what's left behind so he's talking about that and also what this we just read here he's talking about this is just remember these things when you're looking at the law of moses okay as also in reaping the law enjoins a part to be left unreaped signaling thereby training those who possess to sharing and to large heartedness by foregoing of their own to those who were in want, and thus providing means of subsistence for the poor. You see how the law proclaims at once the righteousness and goodness of God, who dispenses food to all ungrudgingly, and in the vintages prohibited the grape gatherers from going back again on what had been left, and from gathering the fallen grapes, and the same injunction is given to the olive gatherers. That's back from Leviticus 19. Besides, the tithes of the fruits and the flocks taught both piety towards God and not covetously to grasp everything, but to communicate gifts of kindness to one's neighbors. For it was from these, I reckon, and from the first fruits that the priests were maintained. We now therefore understand that we are instructed in piety, in liberality, in justice, and in humanity by the law. For it does not command the land to be left fallow in the seventh year. For does it not command the, the, the land to be left fallow in the seventh year? And bids the poor fearlessly to use the fruits that grow by divine agency, nature cultivating the ground for the benefit of all. How then can it be maintained that the law is not humane and a teacher of righteousness? Again in the fiftieth year, it ordered the same thing to be performed as in the seventh. Besides restoring to each one his own land, if from any circumstance he had parted with it in the meantime, setting bounds to desires of those who covet possession, by measuring the period of enjoyment and choosing that those who have paid the penalty of protracted poverty should not suffer lifelong punishment. But alms and acts of faith are royal guards, and blessing is on the head of him who bestows and he who pities the poor shall be blessed. I assume that's from uh, Proverbs and, or, or Sirach or both of them. For he shows love to one like himself because of his love to the creator, because of his love to the creator of the human race. So he says that the idea is that we, we show our love to God and uh, out of our love for God by, by loving those who've been made like us. This is from Clement of Alexandria, uh, the Stromata and Miscellanies, Book 2, Chapter 18, in Anicene Fathers, Volume 2, pages 366-367. So Clement saw, in this passage from the Law of Moses, the kindness of God toward the poor, and that the fields were left fallow on the seventh year and on the fiftieth, and he also said if someone became poor, became impoverished, and sold their land, had to sell their land because they were destitute, that they get it back at the end of the 50 years. So God's restoring people and taking care of them even if they fall on tough times. So this is, this is one of many passages in the Old Testament that reflects the heart of God, of his concern for the poor and those who fall on the tough times. The, the, we see that throughout the Old Testament. Um, I, had a, I had an interesting discussion with an old friend of mine. I, I went to I had my 50th high school reunion this last year, which gave me an idea how, how old I am. And so this was the guy I knew from my freshman year. He's been a friend of mine from, from the time I was a freshman in high school, so a long time ago. So he, so he called me up, and we got into a discussion about the Bible, which let's, let's just say that's very unusual. I went to a, a Catholic high school, and uh, so he he'd read a book about that was bashing the Christian faith, and uh, he was all agitated about this. 
And he still he he still would consider himself to be a Christian. I would say he's hanging on by by not a whole lot. Okay, so I started asking him a few questions. He still believes in Jesus. He believes that he died on the cross and rose from the dead, but he he really has problems with a lot of things in the New Testament and the Old Testament. He completely rejected his whole, his all his attitude was the God of the Old Testament is harsh, is cruel, is is genocidal, and I can't. You know, I, I believe in Jesus and love and the wonderful things that he taught, but the God of the Old Testament, that can't possibly be inspired by God. And, of course, this is someone who really doesn't actually read the Old Testament very much. Maybe he read it once many years ago, I don't know. But he really, he really didn't. So he, he was struggling with this concept, and his, 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 his mindset was the God of the Old Testament is really harsh, the God of the New Testament is really loving. So what he did was he basically, in his mind, gutted the entire Old Testament. And so in, in wrestling with this, I was, reading, I was reading something recently by Tertullian called The Work Against Marcy, and I thought, wow, this is, it really sounds a lot like what my friend, my friend is saying to me, this is the same kind of objection. So this is, Marcy was a heretic who was living in, I think he was born around the year 110, so very early on in the church's history. And... He also struggled with this idea of the God of the Old Testament. The attitude is, well, the God who created the world, the world's a mess, and God created the world, there's all these bad things in it, and then plus we look at all the terrible things in the Old Testament, and he said, that must be a different God than the one who sent Jesus as his son. There must be, a, must be one God who created the world and then another God who came on later. And let's just divorce the two from each other. So what he did is he, he came up with a system. It was a, basically a big, it was a significant heresy in the Christian world. A lot of the early Christian writers talk about him. Tertullian has five books against Marcion, but, and several of the other very early writers talk about Marcion as well. So he was a very influential heretic, and the heresy went on for hundreds of years. So he saw the God of the Old Testament as, as unloving and flawed. He considered there must be two different gods, one who set everything up and created everything, and then, and then the one who's, who's taken over now. He rejected the Old Testament and large parts of the New Testament as well. Um, so Tertullian, so this is the thing. This is, this is a guy who's got a problem with the God of the Old Testament, and, and, as ra- and rather than trying to see the God of the Old Testament more clearly, God is portrayed in the Old Testament, he basically divorces him and, re- and throws out the Old Testament altogether. And so Tertullian is arguing against this heresy in the church. And he's explaining, no, you don't understand God as he's presented in the Old Testament. I want you to hear his, his argument here. He said the world itself, because this is the God who created the world, the world itself is inscribed with the goodness of its maker. And the inscription is read by each man's conscience. So the God who created the universe is good, and we can see that in the world created around us. And he talks about the patience of God. He says, that patience, I mean, which awaits for the sinner's repentance rather than his death, which prefers mercy to sacrifice. This is the God of the Old Testament, Hosea 6.6 who averted from the Ninevites the ruin which had already been denounced against them. That's Jonah chapters 1, 2, and 3. God pronounced judgment on the Ninevites, and even after he pronounced it, when they repented, he, he pulled it. And granted Hezekiah's to Hezekiah's tears an extension of his life. That's in, in, in uh, 2 Kings 20. And in restoring his kingly state, to the monarch of Babylon after his complete repentance. That's the story of Daniel 4, where you know, he's an arrogant ruler and gets, gets cast out to uh, be like a wild animal and finally repents and comes back. He was, God restores him to, to his throne. That mercy, too, which conceded to the devotion of the people, the son of Saul, when he's about to die, the son, uh, 1 Samuel 14, and gave free forgiveness to David on confessing his sins against the house of Uriah. Of course, that's the whole story with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 12, which also restored the house of Israel as often as it condemned it and addressed to it consolation no less frequently than reproof. So Tertullian is saying, this is the God of the Old Testament. Do not therefore look at God simply as judge, 
but turn your attention also to examples of his conduct as the most good. Noting him as you do when he takes vengeance, consider him likewise when he shows mercy. In the scale against his severity, place his gentleness. When you shall have discovered both qualities to coexist in the Creator, you'll find in him the very circumstance which induces you to think there's another God. So if you, see, you see God completely. You see both sides of God. You're not going to be creating a second God. The one God has it all. <clears throat> and now he t- turns his attention to the passage that we're studying. He said, lastly, come and examine into his doctrine, discipline, precepts, and counsels. And he, quote, he, he quotes from the, old, the, the, uh, the, the Ten Commandments. And uh, Leviticus 19, 18, you have to love your neighbors yourself. These wonderful, wonderful things there. It says, to these prime counsels of innocence, <clears throat> chastity, justice, and piety are also added prescriptions of humanity, as when every seventh year slaves are released for liberty, when at the same period the land is spared from tillage, a place also is granted to the needy, and from the treading ox's mouth, the muzzle is removed, and the enjoyment of the fruit of his labor before him. That's don't, don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. So it says, this is, this is the God of the Old Testament. He's even concerned about oxen. In order that kindness first shown in the case of animals might be raised from such rudiments to the refreshment of men. That's in Tertullian's Five Books Against Marcion, Book 2, Chapter 17, and Nicene Fathers, Volume 3, uh, pages 310, 311. So, he points out that we see in the law of Moses God's compassion towards the poor, the slaves, the animals. And if we see God's nature clearly, it will raise up our own nature. And I like the expression he uses here. I don't know if you caught it. It says, um, In the scale against his severity places gentleness. Now, the scale, we think of a scale as something you step on. Okay, back in the old days, if you go to third world countries, a scale will be, it's, uh, you know, you've got, you've got the, the, the balances. It's the balance on either side. So you put, the, you put the, the known weights on one side and you put the produce on the other side, so it's the scales. And it says, if you want to, well, we shouldn't be doing this, but it says, if you want to put, put God in the scales and you're, you're putting all this severity on one side, it said, how about you put all of his mercy on the other side and see how everything balances out? It's all there. It says you got to do this. You're, not, you're only looking at one aspect of God. Consider his severity, but also consider his love, his kindness, and his mercy. And if you see him completely, you'll see that there's nothing lacking. So the challenge for me is I think there are a lot of people who are kind of like my friend in, in the Christian world today who reject God, God with the Old Testament, with a superficial understanding of the Old Testament, they just see God as being harsh and judgmental and, and killing people. And remember, Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, we need to pay attention to the Old Testament as a light shining in a dark place. Paul said to the Christians in Rome in Romans 15 that whatever things were written in the past, referring to the Old Testament, were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, you need to pay hold on to the scriptures that you know from childhood, which is referring to the Old Testament, obviously, that they will make him complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, I was having a discussion with Allison last night. There's a, there's a, a, a young uh, uh, brother from... A, a church that I know well, and uh, he was he was sharing with me some of the concerns that he had for what was going on in the church, and it was basically you know worldliness was just flooding into the church from all different added worldliness things that are clearly teachings that go clearly against against the scriptures. And this was being tolerated, it wasn't being addressed, and it was, it was just kind of taking over. And he's saying, particularly, this was happening with his generation. And so I, I, I shared his, this, this brother's concerns with Allison last night. We're talking about this. And, and Allison was encouraged that the brother was seeing and calling these things out and, and raising the issues. 
And she said, you know what the problem is with, with the church? She says, they're not teaching the Old Testament. Said if they if they had the foundation of the Old Testament, if they understood these things, they knew who God was, if they understood who Josiah was, then they wouldn't be drifting into the into these these worldly worldly ways. So I said, it's a reminder to us when, when the, the importance of studying the, the Old Testament. You know, at the beginning of the year, a lot of people are thinking about uh, uh, what am I going to do this year, and I'd say read. All the Bible, and make sure you're reading the Old Testament too. It's it's good for your spiritual immune system. It will help you in ways you don't even know that you need to. Okay, uh, let's let's continue here in Leviticus 25. There's rules for redeeming property in in, in Leviticus 25 verses uh, uh, 23 to the end of the chapter. There's some rules here, and one of them is. You can't sell your land in perpetuity, all right? Obviously, the land goes back, at the end of the 50 years, it goes back to the original owner of the land, or, you know, presumably their, their heirs. So, the land, you can't sell the land in perpetuity. It goes back to the owner, the jubilee year, and the same thing goes for houses that are in... Uh, uh, that are not in walled cities. So houses out in the countryside that are that are associated with the land, that's all tied in with the land. The idea is that the land belongs to God and you can't sell it in perpetuity just for a limited period of time then it goes back. <clears throat> Same thing with slaves. So if there are if if there is a, a brother who ends up being a slave, you need to keep in mind how many years until the 50 years are up so that the price is reflected accordingly. <clears throat> also, if someone is poor and has to sell their land, a close relative can redeem it for them, meaning buy it back. So you don't have to wait till the 50 years are up. So let's say I I'm get, get destitute and I'm desperate shape and I have to sell my family land, my inheritance that my brother or my uncle or somebody else like that can come along within a certain period of time and they can buy it back and, 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 and then I, it can be restored to the family that way. So there's a provision for that. Um, and then uh, there's provisions about what do you do for your brother who becomes poor. Leviticus 25, starting in verse 35. If your brother becomes poor and weak in strength among you, then you shall help him like a resident alien or sojourner that he may live with you. Take no use or your interest from him, but fear your God and the Lord that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury nor lend him your food at profit. I'm the Lord your God who brings you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan so as to be your God. So it says don't charge them usury. Now what does usury mean? Does that mean? Is that the same as interest? Or is it excessive interest? What does that mean? I'm not sure. I've heard people say both. Uh, I don't know. And the question, people raise the question today, is it all right for Christians to lend money out at interest or not? And they'll use this passage right here. That's been a, throughout history, that's been a, a controversial question for Christians. Now, I think we can't pick and choose things from the law of Moses that, that apply to us. And I also think of the passage... In Matthew 25, in the parable of the talents, that the, the man who buried his talent, Jesus came back and said, well, you know, you could have given it to the bankers, and at least I'd get it back with interest. So that would imply to me that Jesus doesn't think that charging interest is always a, a terrible thing. I think the, the idea here is you don't want to take advantage of somebody who is, who is poor. And the principle about being generous and open-handed and bending over backwards to help those who are poor in need among our brothers definitely uh, definitely applies here too. Starting in verse 39. Now, if your brother with you becomes poor and sells himself to you, that's one way you become a slave, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave, but as a hired servant or a sojourner. He shall be with you and shall work for you until the year of remission. Then in the remission he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and shall return to his own family. He shall return to the, to the possession of his fathers. 
For they are my personal servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold with the sale of a household servant. You shall not overwork him with labor, but you shall fear the Lord your God. So, it's if your brother becomes poor and sells himself to you, you have to, you can't treat him as a slave. You treat him as a servant. You treat him as a, uh, a sojourner, and he works with you until the year of remission, at t- which time he's liberated. It says you have to treat him, you have to treat him nicely, you have to treat him respectfully, you don't abuse him and overwork him. Uh, we'll come more back to that a little more uh, a little later on here about the significance of that. Now, the reason for these unusual requirements about the land and the people and how you treat them, uh, to me, is as interesting as the rules themselves. Is why did God come up with these particular rules? I think there are some, some things we can learn from that. Leviticus 25:23 is interesting. A couple of interesting statements in here. It says, "The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For in my sight." You are resident aliens and sojourners. Mm. Now, does that make you think of anything? <laughs> okay. That's the, the idea is, is that God says, that's my land, not yours. You know, the song, this land is your land, this land is my land. Okay, this is God's, God sings, this land is my land, this land is my land. So it's not, is, he, is, is that is, this is my land. I gave it to you. This is my land. And you can't sell it to somebody else because you don't really own it. All right? So, if you can own the land, what does that make you? Aliens and sojourners in the land. You don't own the land. You're just, you're just belongs to God. You're just taking care of it. So, <laughs> and that should make you think of a lot of New Testament things in the New Testament. Obvious one, 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. This, the idea is... This, we don't own this world. We're just passing through. We're aliens and strangers and sojourners. That's what God said to the people. He said, in my view, you're aliens and sojourners traveling through this land. First uh, Corinthians 7.29 I say, brethren, the time is short. So from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. Those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. That's the idea is that, you know, we're here. Don't get attached to the world. The whole idea of separation from the world is really, don't be attached. The idea is don't be attached to the world. We're in the world, but we don't get attached to it. We don't own it. We're just sojourners and strangers. Um, Hebrews and examples of faith. There's so much to learn in Hebrews 11 about what it means to have saving faith. And several of the statements in there reflect this idea that the holy men of God in the past, their attitude was, this world is not my home. Okay, I'm not here for this. I'm looking for something greater. I think of in Hebrews 11 and verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he would receive as an inheritance. <clears throat> he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob and heirs with him of the same promise. He waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So this is the reason for saying this is because this is the way we need to be if we're living by faith, that we're passing through this land. We're aliens and strangers. The house, the land, the property that you own, whatever, the car. So this is, this, this is, all, this is God's property. We, we're going to enjoy it for a short time and then move on, like Abraham's attitude when he was a stranger in, in, in the land where he was. And uh, it says the same thing about Moses a little later. And uh, it says about all the patriarchs, they all... In verse 13, Hebrews 11, They all died by faith, not having received the promise, but having seen from afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. These are the heroes of faith. Strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So God says, that's, that's how I see you. 
All right. Um, now another thing I noticed in here, besides that, the land is mine and your your residence, aliens and sojourners. Uh, the other thing I noticed was interesting. Verse forty-two about why you can't, if you buy one of your brothers as a slave, why you can't treat him as a slave. Verse 42, it says, For they are my personal servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold the sale of a household servant. So, God's attitude is, don't treat these people as, as, as your slaves, okay? They're my servants, okay? You can't do that. That the, the, the Jews, the people of God, members of this kingdom, they are my servants. Similar statement at the end in verse 55. It says, For the children of Israel are personal servants to me. They are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So this, this is the idea. And... Uh, how many, how many statements in the, in the New Testament are really tied in with this idea? I think of a few. About When it's talking about masters, how you treat your servants, it says in Colossians 4.1, Masters, give your bond servants what's just and fair, knowing you have a master in heaven. Okay, We're all servants of the master in heaven. So you better be treating other people who are under your charge with that in mind. Uh, Romans 14, this is a good one for all of us, I think, is uh, Romans 14, starting in verse 1. It says, Receive one who's, uh, who is weak in faith, uh, not to, without, uh, but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes him may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. And, and here, here's, the, here's the reason behind that. Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will, make, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. The idea is that we're all servants of God. Okay? We're not servants of each other, we're servants of God. So it says, like, who are you to judge somebody else's servant? There's a tendency among Christians who are more serious about actually doing what the Bible says to be looking around judging everybody else. Well, they're not doing this, and they're not doing that. And the attitude is, in things that aren't laid out in Scripture in black and white, the attitude is, I've got to please my master, and he's got to please his master. And we don't need to be, we don't need to be, need to be having a critical spirit where we're tearing down and judging one another. That's the point. It says, somebody's a vegetarian, that's fine. Somebody eats meat. There's a paleo diet, that's fine too. It's like, whatever. It's just, he's got to please his master just like you do. And so don't worry about, don't worry about stuff like that. Little things that the, the scripture says nothing about one way or the other. Okay? Um, so a lot, of, a lot of applications with this idea that we're, 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 we're servants. We're servants of God. That he, he, we, are, we are his servants. And God said, you can't, can't abuse somebody else's servant because you're my servants. Amen. Chapter 26. Now, chapter 26 is a, a delightful chapter because, to me, this, this summarizes the entire Old Testament in one chapter. So it says, can, I, can you give me the Old Testament for dummies? Or can you give me the Cliff's Notes version of the Old Testament? And they say, you know, I, I don't have enough time to read three or four chapters in Deuteronomy. I say, okay, only one, one chapter, Leviticus 26. That's it. Okay. Because he starts off in the beginning, in Leviticus 26... This is really a detailed prophecy of everything that follows for the next several hundred years. Leviticus 26, let's pick it up in verse 3. If you walk in my ordinances and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of the vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. War shall not pass through your land, I will give peace to the land, and you shall lie down. None will make you afraid. I will utterly destroy the bad wild animals from the land. You'll chase your enemies. They shall fall by slaughter before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred. A hundred of you shall chase, put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. I will look upon you 
and make you fruitful and multiply and establish you my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest of the past two years and clear out the old because of the new. I will establish my covenant among you. My soul shall not abhor you. So this is, this is wonderful. It says all you have to do, you keep the covenant, you follow me, you will have nothing to worry about. I'll take care of everything. You don't have to worry about the enemies. Ten of you will put a hundred to flight. Okay? You don't have to worry about your crops. I'm going to give you more blessings. God says, you follow what I, what I say. But there's a big if in here. You notice that? If. He said, if you, if you obey me. There's a big if. And then he tells the other side of the story. And if, and what if I don't obey God? What's going to happen then? Okay. So he picks it up there. What if you don't? Verse 14. And I looked at, this is like saying, I want to take God on, okay? I want, to, I, want to go, I want to oppose God. I'm going to go deliberately against God. I want to step in the ring with God. And God says, okay, you go in the fight. You go in and want to step in the ring with me? He said, it's going to be a four-round fight unless you throw the towel in earlier. And the fourth round, it's going to be a knockout, okay? And he says, here's what's going to happen if you go up against me, just so you know. Before you, before you decide to do this, round one, verse 14, Now, if you do not obey me, neither, neither do all these ordinances, but your soul disobeys them, despises my judgment, so as not to do all the commandments, but to shatter my covenant, I also will thus do to you. I'll bring difficulty upon you, both the itch, the jaundice, the gangrenous eyes, the withering away of your flesh, you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you. You shall fall before your enemies. Those who hate you shall pursue you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. Okay, so, <coughs> it says you're going to be scared to death. You're going to be paranoid. You're going to be running away with nobody chasing you, as opposed to five of you chasing a hundred. says, here's what's going to happen if you disobey me. And then that's round one. It says, okay, and if you still don't listen after that, here's what's going to happen. In verse 18, then after all this, if you do not obey me, I will increase your punishment seven times more for your sins. I'll crush your excessive arrogance. I'll make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength shall be spent in vain. Your land will not yield its produce nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. Then after, after this you walk contrarywise or not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. I will also send among you the wild animals of the land. They'll eat you and utterly destroy your cattle and make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate. That's round two. Okay? So it gets worse. Says you're, the animals are going to be coming out of the forest to eat you up. Round three. Then, if by these things you're not corrected by me, but walk contrary to me, I will also walk in hostility to you and will strike you yet seven times for your sins. I'll also strike you with the sword, exacting the vengeance of the covenant, and you will flee for refuge to your cities. I'll also send forth death among you. You shall be delivered in the hand of the enemies. When you're afflicted by want of bread, ten women shall break your, break your bread in one oven. They shall dole out your bread by measure, and you shall eat and still be hungry. And then he goes on from this. So there's, there's, a, there's, there's yet a fourth round here. It says if you, if you don't listen after round one, round two, round three, and round four, it keeps getting worse. And then finally he said, I'm going to smash you and take you off into captivity. And the people who are left behind are going to be in tough shape after that. So God explains there are four, four successive rounds going to get worse and worse and worse until finally they're, they're, the kingdom is taken away from them and they're, they're taken off into captivity, round four. And then after four rounds of discipline, he says if they repent from there, God will restore them. In verse 40. This is, for, this is when, they've been, when they've been decimated and taken away. But if they confess their sins and the sins of their fathers that they transgressed and disregarded me and walked contrary to me. I think, I think about Daniel's prayer there. Uh, in verse 41, And that I also have walked 
in hostility to them and destroyed them in the land of their enemies. Then their uncircumcised heart will feel ashamed and they will render satisfaction for their guilt. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham. I'll remember, I'll remember the land. The land all shall be deserted by them, and the land will enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate because of them. Then they must take responsibility for their lawless acts because they're disregarded my judgments and their soul abhorred my ordinances. Yet for all that, when they were in the land of their enemies, I did not neglect them nor treat them with contempt so as to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God, but I will remember their former covenant when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of bondage, in the sight of the Gentiles, to be their God, I am the Lord. These are the judgments, the ordinances, and the laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. So, what does this tell you about the nature of God? It tells me it tells me a lot of things here. So the the uh, I mean, for one thing, he he basically lays out the whole Old Testament. This is this is the story of the Old Testament right here. This is what happens from here forward. You know, go, going from uh, uh, from uh, Joshua, which is when they were pretty much obeying, and then the rest of it is in in the four four rounds with God, and going through uh, through Judges and and Samuel. And kings and chronicles and and many of the prophets are talking about this and then finally uh, Jeremiah Ezekiel Daniel they get hauled off into captivity and then they're brought back in Ezra and Nehemiah and uh, this 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 whole so this basically this is an outline of, of the scriptures now if somebody took it seriously they could think of all the pain that they could have ignored that could, they could have avoided if they just took the warnings of God seriously uh, so it tells me about the, the character of God number one he's patient. He could have wiped them out initially, or just, you know, he says he gives them repeated warnings and opportunities to repent, and he brings about more and more discipline in the hope that they will repent and not have to go through further discipline. Uh, God tells us in advance and gives us a roadmap, so there really should be no surprises for somebody who listens to what God says to avoid the destruction. God doesn't want to destroy us. He, he sends the warnings that we'll repent. Uh, God is patient, but his patience has limits. There will be a day of judgment that will come, as Peter talks about the same thing. God gives us free choice and free will. We're not little robots. We're not little automatons that God has programmed. He gives us choice. Do you want to follow me or, or not? It's, it's really your choice. And God loves us and disciplines us for our own good. The other thing is God means what he says, okay? Take his warning seriously. Don't blow them off. I'm going to close with, in chapter 27, I really want to make uh, one point here. Chapter 27 is a, is a discussion about uh, gifts that are devoted by, to God when people make vows, okay? Uh, a vow would be God if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. That's a vow. Okay? Now, are we are, are Christians supposed to or allowed to do that now? God, if you do this for me, then I'll do that for you. No. No. I think so. I think so. Okay. So this is this is a the good this is wrestle with that question. Are, are we in the Old Testament? Plenty of people did that. I think of Jacob at the start of his journey in Genesis twenty-eight. God, if you bless me on my journey, I'll give you a tenth of everything. And uh, uh, at Numbers six, there talks about uh, making a vow, and I think that's what's going on actually in Acts twenty-one, where where Paul and um, and some people with him are, are are fulfilling a vow that they made. Hannah in First Samuel chapter one, beautiful example. She's childless, and she says, if you give me a child, I'll offer him to the Lord. And the unfortunate example of Jephthah in the book of Judges, who says, you give me the victory in the battle, and whatever crosses the threshold first, I'll sacrifice to the Lord. And that, that, uh, you know, that didn't turn out so well because it was his daughter there. So, uh, so many examples in the scriptures of people who make vows, and in Malachi says, you know, if you vow something to the Lord, you're going to give God, God your, your best sheep. You don't switch in one of the defective ones for that. You don't want to do that. So you, you vow something to God, you need to, to carry it through. So uh, 
there's one example in the New Testament in, with Paul in Acts 21-23 of making a vow. Uh, I don't see it prohibited anywhere, but you certainly don't have to do that. Some people do that. Some people really avoid doing that. But the idea is that if you promise to God you're going to do something, you better do it. Okay, uh, that, 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 that's, that's for sure. Uh, so Leviticus 27 gives some rules for redeeming gifts that are devoted to God. So some, some person or something is devoted to God and you want to redeem it. Well, what does the word redeem mean? Okay, and I think about you think if a building has a sign Redemption Center in front of it, there's two possibilities. One is it's a church, okay, and and then the other one is that they that they take bottles, okay, <laughs> they take used bottles. All right, Massachusetts has a bottle law, which means that every time you go to the store and buy a bottle of uh, you know carbonated beverage or something like that, you, you have to pay five cents or whatever. They, you leave a deposit, and then the idea is. For those who are so inclined, you, when you return at the appropriate place the bottle, you get the five cents back. That's your redeeming. That's the redemption. That's, that's your redeeming. You gave them the five cents, you get the five cents back. That's redemption. The same word is used for redeem and ransom. Same word. Okay, very significant words. Just used a few places in the New Testament very significantly, and it's throughout. In the Greek Old Testament, it's throughout. Uh, Leviticus 25 and Leviticus uh, Leviticus 27. This idea of redeeming something, uh, you know, it, it, you you're, you're, uh, you can you can uh, you can redeem some land that you're. If if I lost my land, a relative can come and redeem it for us. Okay, uh, but the, the idea of, of redeeming or ransom is to to reclaim something. You pay you pay a price and reclaim it. Ransom. Think of the example of the, the missionaries with Cam who were working in, in Haiti and who got kidnapped and, the, and they ran, the, the people who kidnapped them said, we're setting a ransom price of a million dollars ahead for these people. So you give us a million dollars, you pay the ransom price and you get the people back. So that's, that's, the, that's the idea behind a ransom or redemption. Same idea, a fee is paid to get something back. So the, the, the idea here is, in, in, in Leviticus 25, the idea, this idea of a redemption and redeeming, I think of the example of, it says, if, if someone sells themselves into slavery, then one of his relatives can redeem the person. They can go and they can pay the price and have that person liberated. What happens when they redeem the the, uh, uh, the 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 slave the person sold himself into slavery. Well, they become that person's servant for the rest of the time until the until the jubilee until the fifty years are up. Okay, um, so this whole idea of redemption, the concept is really laid out here in the book of Leviticus about what does it mean to re- redemption, redeem, redeemer. Okay, if we understand this concept, you're paying a price to liberate somebody. So, so somebody gets becomes a slave, they are liberated, but then they become the property of the one who paid the redemption price. Okay, they're not freed; they become the property of the brother who liberated them, and they serve him until the year of redemption. I think of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20 about why he came. He says, Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Okay? The picture is, it's like we had sold ourselves into slavery, and Jesus, our brother, paid the redemption price to liberate us. Now, does that mean we're free, or does that mean we serve Jesus since he's liberated us? Okay, It means, it means we serve him now. Peter goes to, uses the same kind of imagery. 1 Peter 1.18 says, Knowing 
You were not redeemed by corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without defect. So in Leviticus 27, it talks about how you can redeem something with uh, by paying silver. And Peter says, no, you're not redeemed by silver or gold, but you're redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Um, and I think about Paul's teaching about why we need to maintain sexual purity in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Every sin a man does is outside his body, but he who can commit sexual immorality sins against his own body. Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And he says, And you're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. This is the picture. We were slaves to sin. Jesus redeemed us by paying the price, but it wasn't silver or gold. It was his own blood. And now we, have, we are now his servants. He owns us. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. So my body, just like the land belongs to God, my body belongs to God because Jesus paid the redemption price and redeemed me. So I need to, to, to keep that in mind. This isn't my body. It's Jesus's. He redeemed my body from sin and Satan. So the significance of the idea of redemption, that we have been redeemed, and uh, that, but it's not with gold or silver like the things in Leviticus 25 and 27. So we'll close there and uh, on to something in the New Testament next time. Amen.